0: Hello, and welcome to Where's the Exit, the podcast for tech entrepreneurs who are looking to leverage their IP to maximize their exit valuation. Today, I'm joined by Sandy Reid. Welcome to the show, Sandy.
1: Hi, good to be here.
0: Great. And uh, for listeners who don't know who you are um, already, uh, can you just give us a little bit about what you're doing and just say a little bit what you do and, and who you are, where you're coming from, that type of thing?
1: Okay, so I'm a Deputy Fund Principal at Mercia Asset Management.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Mercia is a listed business with about a billion of assets under management, and the vast majority of those are in the venture space. So we are active um, venture capitalist investors. We focus towards the earlier stage of investing from C through to about Series B. And we can take a, a company that's on the right growth journey from first investment through to 10 million if that's appropriate so we have a variety of funds that we use but we're spread all over the country we are national investors we have offices spread all around the regions and i look after the midlands so i'm based out of both our nottingham and our henley and Arden headquarters
0: right okay and see i mean i've got experience it's my experience of vc funds and investment is kind of peripheral i guess in that my client's tend to be very, very interested um, in it, but it's not something I've experienced directly. But from seed all the way to series B, is that a broad range, like a very broad range for a fund? Are they usually sort of more focused than that, or is it typical?
1: No, I think it's because we've got quite a lot of assets under management across different classes. So we manage some regional funds. So in the Midlands, for example, we've got the Midlands Engine Investment Fund, and we have a Northern Powerhouse Investment Fund on the equity side. But we also have EIS funds and VCT funds, and in a slightly different twist to many VC houses, we actually have our own balance sheet that we can use to invest.
0: Okay. Um,
1: we tend not to get into all the intricacies of how the funds interact because clients really don't and um, don't care and aren't interested. Yeah. They just want to know that they're going to get investment. So, yeah. so we we range it over that. We tend to go in quite early, and then we can sit with the business for a number of years. So we're reasonably patient we don't have you know a fast flip in mind when we get in particularly yeah. into IP rich businesses where we know that whole periods are going to be years
0: yeah and and the Midlands engine I, I know we were sort of chatting just before the show and you know we said obviously that's a regional a thing but you're are you running that at the moment the sort of so, Mercia, or and and the other question I had was how do people sort of come about how, how do people come to you how do people access sort of Mercia and also the Midlands
1: Engine? So, so there's, there has always been a bit of confusion about the Midlands Engine. <laughs> so the Midland Eng, Midlands Engine Investment Fund is a fund of funds that's um, managed by the British Business Bank. And what they did was procure a number of fund managers to deliver different pots of capital from within that. So Mercia delivered the early stage equity fund okay. across the whole of the Midlands Engine region. But there are other equity providers and debt providers within that. fund. In terms of how do entrepreneurs get to us? Uh, I think the answer is pretty much any way that they can. <laughs> but uh, so we pride ourselves actually at Mercer trying really hard to have an open door policy. So we do a yeah. variety of things. You can put pitch decks in through the website and we guarantee that these will always go to an investor for review. Okay. And we work very hard to make sure that we give prompt replies to those that come in. Whether that's very quick no, which is often the case given the volume of things that we see, yeah. or whether that's we want some more information, we we do try to get in touch very quickly. I know a lot of people in the early stage market, so it's very hard if you don't have connections to investors. How do you get in front of them? And it's true we do receive a lot of stuff through you know, professional advisors, whether that's patent agents or lawyers, through our non-executive director networks So these people that sit on companies that we've invested in. But actually, to get over that hurdle, we introduced something called Meet the Funder, And it was particularly okay. relevant during the pandemic. So during the pandemic, all those opportunities to sidle up to investors at conferences and trade shows and panel sure. events, yeah. and talking just evaporated. And we became very aware that that entrepreneurs have lost that opportunity. So every Friday we run something called Meet the Funder, which is a three-hour slot from nine till noon. And you can book a slot in there and you will get somebody from the investment team. You know, whether that's me or one of my colleagues, you know, we take it in turns, we take it on rotation, but it's your opportunity to have a 15-minute chat with somebody who can give you some proper feedback and, if it's relevant, pass your pitch deck to the right investor at Mercia to take a look at. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of gets around the, how do you get to something? You know, if you don't have a network, how do you actually get to speak to somebody and have the conversation? So if if your listeners look on our website, they'll find all the links to meet the funder. They can click through and book a slot. And I think, you know, you could get anybody from our CEO through to somebody like me, to one of the associates, somebody in equity, somebody in debt, Just depends who picked up the baton for that particular week. So you can end up having some very interesting conversations.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've certainly found Mercia to be very open. I'm one of those, you know, patent uh, attorneys that's passed some some things your way. Usually through a good friend of mine, Lisa Ward, who actually put us in contact, Mm -hmm. and always well received. And so, I yeah, I think you're you're right. Mercia, from my point of view anyway, has a nice open policy to this, which is great because even if people get what you. You talked about there as the, the quick no. That's no doubt going to have some useful information in it and something that they're going to take forward. So it's going to be valuable, irrespective.
1: We, we appreciate that fundraising is an incredibly time-consuming process for founders. Hmm. It, it really distracts them from their business. And the worst thing can be to either get no answer or to be strung along for a long period of time. Yeah, so, so we do try to to make sure we we get through you know applications, pictures quite quickly.
0: Yeah, I have heard that before. The the sort of distraction of fundraising. I mean, it's it's obviously essential, um, but it it feels though. In fact, one CTO described it to me as my job's to make the stuff. His job, and he pointed at the CEO, is to get the money so that I can, <laughs> so that I can make it. And the CEO seemed to go just bounce from one round to another round to another round when one closes. The next one effectively starts for them um, yeah we try
1: to when we invest we do try to structure the deals um a a little bit more than that in that yeah we we try to make sure a business is capitalized for 12 to 18 months okay because if you if you don't take that level of capital then you're exactly what you said you're bouncing from one round to the next and you don't have an opportunity to prove anything and the worst thing that you can do is try and raise investment when you haven't hit your milestones, it's incredibly yeah. difficult. Yeah. So when we invest, we're always looking to make sure that the plan is credible, the milestones are clear, and that we think they have enough investment to to reach those milestones. Because without doing and and some time beyond to do the fundraising, because yes. you've got to hit your milestone, and then you've got to go out and fundraise for maybe three to six months. So yeah. you've got to have enough time to do both.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Should we, should we get into the meat of it, uh, which for me is uh, is IP. Uh, for you, that's probably just a, a small section of of what you look at. But it's um, of interest to the listeners here about essentially. I mean, I want to put the general question first, which is you know pretty broad in, in nature. But it, it's really what are you looking for in terms of IP? And there's a whole series of avenues we can go down on this, and I'm sure we'll explore some of them. But what are you looking for in terms of IP from an investment? A business that you're going
1: to invest some money in. So you did touch on something earlier actually, which is it is just part of what we're looking for. Yeah. So it's not the be all and the end no. all. And depending on the business and the sector, it can have um different levels of importance. Okay. So I give the example is software businesses. Mm-hmm. Software businesses often don't have, you know, tangible IP in them, they won't have filed patents. Yeah. Um is that a problem for investors? No, because we understand that. Yeah. And, and what it actually then means for a software business raising investment is that execution is the, the critical part, speed of execution, ability yeah. to get to market and make sales. And that's what we're focused on. So in those cases, you know, the makeup of the team, I mean, team is always hugely important in the experience of the team. Yeah. But in terms of software businesses, we're looking at what can the team deliver. Now, that doesn't mean that intellectual property has no part to play in a software business. No, quite. Um, you know, trademarks being the classic. And I think yeah. sometimes software companies will file trademarks, but I don't think they really believe that there's value in there.
0: No. <laughs> and,
1: and when I have that conversation, I, I I do wheel out an old anecdote that I have, which was a, a team that were were based in a university to start with, but had a software product. Yeah. And they're like, oh, we don't need intellectual property it's going to be all about execution they went out and they went to lots of trade shows and conferences and promoted their new piece of software that was going to do something new and fantastic and they had a nice name for it and it was really starting to cause some waves and they were like this is going to be great well their competitors of course thought oh no something's coming and we don't have something quite as good um oh they haven't trademarked it (laughs) And their competitors popped out, filed a trademark. And, of course, when they went to launch, they had to firstly change the name of their product. Yeah. And they'd lost all the advantage of the work that they'd done pre-spin out. Yeah. And, you know, it's really difficult. And a deep-pocketed competitor can potentially do that to you. So I, I always... Keep that in mind when it, you know, people say, Oh no, we haven't bothered doing the trademarks and like, yeah. But if you've really got something, yeah, your competitors are going to notice and they might just do the dirty on you.
0: Exactly. And then talking about distractions of fundraising, that is another distraction that they just you just don't need. You've got you're ready to launch, you're ready to go, and all of a sudden you realize you can't use the name. It sounds like nothing just changed the name, but actually it can be quite complicated yeah, and does. an emotional process as well. Actually, yeah. people are tied to names. Um yeah. Um,
1: to... about... Oops, sorry
0: Go ahead. No, so, so i was just going to say that we had uh, matt salmon a trademark attorney on a couple of episodes back and he said was saying exactly the same thing trademarks are about more than just your ability it's about, it's about not just about protecting your name but it's about your ability to trade um and this is an example of that exactly somebody else registered the trademark so they couldn't trade under that name anymore and that's a big Pain in the
1: air, and so not easy. only did they register the trademark, they put a product out underneath it that right. was exterior. Okay, The complete confusion in the marketplace. I will hasten to add that this wasn't a Mercia investment. This was something I came across. <laughs> of of Mercia. But nonetheless, I mean, it still stands. You know, it's it's definitely something to bear in mind, even in a business where you don't think intellectual property is going to be the thing that's going to be most valued at your exit.
0: Yeah, it's inter- I mean, it's a, it's a good... It's good to hear you say that you understand that patents are, I mean, I, I, I'm nervous about saying they're not relevant to software because patent attorneys all around the world will tell me that, you know, mm-hmm. you can do it. You know. But essentially, if it's pure software, then they're, they're not relevant, okay, or they're a lot less relevant at the very mm-hmm. least. And it's, but I still get calls from um, tech entrepreneurs with a startup, maybe they're sort of, you um, going through investment or they're a bit more mature than just a startup and they say that investors are still asking them for patents and they don't want to know about anything else and so often the entrepreneur then says to me I just want a patent can you just file me a patent so that I can show something to an investor I mean clearly that's not your view which I'm very very happy about but is that something you see as prevalent is that prevalent in the sector do you still hear about that or is it old-fashioned now
1: It's not something that I've come across particularly. It doesn't surprise me because, I mean, there's all sorts of quirks and corners of venture capital that, you know, things can turn up. I think if there is a hardware product tied to a piece of software and that's critical to the business model, I think it's acceptable to be inquiring as to what intellectual property is there. But if you're talking about a straight SaaS software play, and yeah. it's just get on out there and execute and get to market. That That's yeah. the thing that's going to make that business successful.
0: And while we're on software, which is sort of, so we've just established patents, less relevant, but there's still other intangible assets out there, um, unregistered rights uh, being one, as well as sort of, you know, things like know-how, there's trade secrets. Um, how much do investors place any stock in that in the software sector or is it sort of, as you said about other things, is it sector dependent? Is it different across different industries?
1: It is. It's different. It, everything. <laughs> Every deal is, has its own quirks and its yeah. own yeah. its own points. It's it's something that we're less concerned about in okay. a software play right. because what's the valuation metric in a SaaS business? It's recurring revenue. Your annual right. recurring revenue is the metric by which you will live and die for the duration of the business. It will be what you're valued on at exits. What we'll value you on as we make an investment. Yeah. And so, you know, does does having a lot of intangible IP sitting there? I mean, yeah, you don't want your source code stuck out everywhere, do you? Yeah, quite. Be, but, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, as long as you've been relatively sensible in how you've looked after that, that should be fine.
0: So, is it a bit of a is it a bit of a tick box? then just covering the basics and then we're 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 okay i mean i i I want to extend that question actually into into patents as well and and sort of get your um feeling on how knowledgeable investors are about ip and whether they should be more knowledgeable or whether they um or whether it just doesn't matter you know it's just not that and it's just not the most important thing um i'm not i'm not sure what what your thoughts are on that
1: so so in other sectors, so software,
0: put that to one side, but in yeah.
1: a lot of other things that um, VCs do, particularly in the B2B space, if you're looking at life sciences, deep tech, yeah. you know, all of these more traditional space, not traditional for venture capital, but yeah, yeah they, those high growth areas <laughs> that we work in, mm-hmm. um, that have got those really big potential at the end. Intellectual property then becomes very important. Okay. And, yeah, um, as with any profession, there is a mixed skill set out there yeah. I have found okay. in terms of understanding of the intellectual property, you know, the value of it, how it's filed, how it progresses through. It's it it does vary by yeah. individual. Um, I'm perhaps slightly different to many in venture capital or finance, in that I don't come from an accountancy background. Okay. So so I've come from a technical background, I have a PhD. I have, you know, patents filed on my work. I've worked in industrial R&D where patents were again filed. Yeah. I've then worked a little bit with licensing. I've, you know, run a spin-out company where the intellectual property is very important. So in terms of my ability to assess intellectual property and how it is going to fit into a strategy of the company I'm investing yeah. in, you know, I'm pretty knowledgeable and it's definitely more than a tick box exercise. Is that knowledge replicated across all the venture capital? Uh, mm. No, but there are still some incredibly knowledgeable people out there in this space because that's what they do. Mm. So I think it's a, a mixed skill set. But if you're going to be investing in this sort of high tech space, then yeah. intellectual property is something you have to understand. Yeah. Now, there's a couple of different flavours of that when we're looking at it and doing due diligence. You know we're not going to conduct our own freedom to operate search particularly in an okay. age investment you know the quantum versus the price of doing that however we might expect the company to have done it yeah Or we right. might expect that to be done before another round we will look at the key claims and make sure that they um you know apply to the technology that we're investing in and that makes sense we'll look at the age of the patents and search reports yeah. how that fits together A well-advised company with a, you know, a good patent agent will be in a sound position typically to answer those questions.
0: Yeah.
1: What we then find, Mm. the bit that they sometimes are less sure-putting is how is that in the company? How has it been licensed into the company? How has it been assigned into the company? Are they absolutely sure about ownership and then how it fits with their strategy? And that commercial thinking piece is sometimes missing. So the classic thing you'll see in an early stage business is a, a very technically competent founding team that love their technical space inside out and, you know, yeah. a, a, you know love love that they've got something new, you know, they're inspired by it, want to get it to market and will have a really strong grasp of what's in the pattern and, yeah. you know, does it cover the technology and they can answer questions very well on that. What we find is that, the teams are usually um, less well-balanced than we'd hope. And they've got, you know, very strong technical skills, but maybe less commercial skills in there. And that's where in due diligence, you can start finding some holes sometimes about, you know, if it's been a spin-out from a corporate spin-out or a university, are the licensing terms appropriate? Are they aligned to what a venture capitalist would want to see? Are there assignment terms in there? You know, to be sure that the intellectual property is going to be owned by the entity, because otherwise, how can you exit if it's not owned by the the entity that you've invested in, the company you've invested in? How can you sell that company if they're licensing in all their intellectual property? Yeah. So these are the, the areas that we can spend quite a lot of time on. You know, has it been licensed? What are the commercial terms for that? But is assignment possible under the terms that they've got? Can it be enacted at the point of investment because we want to see it in the business because that's the value the protection in the business
0: yeah i, th- I think we've sort of we've, we've come away from software now which is good that's what, mm-hmm. it, what I'll, and we're going more into the sort of the meat of a like you say a more i think use the word traditional but it, it, it's sort of like a, you know a deep tech biotech sort of uh you know a harder ip yeah. if you like um and we've got in in that type of business and we sort of covered a few of the points now but I wonder if we can sort of think about um, the types of things you like to see in quite a structured way in terms of um, the patents that it has we're looking at sort of so we've got I I sort of split it into into three areas one is protection and that is kind of do you protect what you think you protect (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the next one is risk which you know you would probably put sort of ownership under that as well as kind of um, FTO and um, that type of thing and then there's the commercial aspects as well and what can happen with due diligence is that due diligence can be it's only picked up from an IP perspective when you guys start to ask questions <laughs> which is often too late and and it would be nice if we could sort of go through the types of things to make sure if you're if we took an example of a university spin out what should you make sure At sort of the very earliest stage that you've got right and you've mentioned something already with the you know the licensing of the ip from the university that type of thing so i think
1: yeah the the three boxes that you talk about are, are pretty much the ones that i would run through as well yeah so do the patents do the key claim top claims in the patents cover the product that that is going to be commercialized yeah and that sounds really simple but what you'll usually yeah. find is that time has passed. Mm-hmm. Patents were filed right yeah. at the very beginning, probably yeah. too early. As a general rule, that happens. Yeah. Yeah. You know, using the example specifically in universities, yeah. um, there's sometimes the wrong targets to drive the wrong behaviour inside universities. Yeah. And so patents were filed too early. Yeah. And then as the research work has developed, the, the the product that's going to be sold might have moved away. From, from the core claims that were put in in the first instance. So yeah. it's not a, a simple question to go, oh, of course they've got patents. And there we go. D- do they actually cover what what you're going to sell now? Yeah. And that's not just true at that spin-out phase and first investment. That is true as the company progresses.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, because the product will evolve, the market will evolve, and you should always have an ongoing strategy to check that you're protecting and that your protection covers what you're going to sell. Absolutely. So, so absolutely falls into that. Have you got the right thing protected? Mm -hmm. Have you got freedom to operate? The commercials is quite interesting. And university spin outs come with even a slightly different flavor again compared to some other deals, in that when a a company spins out of the university, they will typically take an equity stake in that business and quite a large equity stake. Yeah. You know, along with the academics as well. But the argument is the university has provided all these resources and therefore, you know, has a has a, an equity stake in the business. So something that can be quite difficult for investors and certainly difficult for universities to understand is that if you've got a large equity stake in a business and you've licensed the intellectual property in there, yeah. and an investor comes along to put money in to grow the capital of the business, so to make the business more valuable, we are not aligned with a shareholder who's trying to take royalties out of the
0: business at the same yeah. time. Okay. Because Sounds we, obvious it, when you put it like that, doesn't it? Yeah,
1: because <laughs> because you're all shareholders in the business. Yep. You therefore should be fundamentally aligned that the business is going to grow and become more valuable. Mm-hmm. You take investment into the business to make that happen. And therefore, we want all shareholders to be aligned on that. And taking royalties out at an early stage... Is not aligned with that, you're taking no. money away that could be used to grow the business, yeah. And so, that is a conversation that I think has gone around forever between universities and venture capitalists. Because, yeah. you know, from our point of view, the money we put into that business is to grow the business,
0: not to provide a revenue stream to the university, especially when the university is a fellow shareholder,
1: yes. So, if they've yeah. got you know <laughs> 30 40 percent of the business, sometimes more, we have seen yeah. more. Um, then it's not very aligned behaviour. So so that's something that we consider quite closely. The second part is universities are often reluctant to uh, assign intellectual property into a spin-out at the point of spin-out. And we understand that, you know, the clawback can be difficult if the business fails and lots of early-stage SMEs fail. So we can understand the logic and... You know, one of the the ways that you can see that dealt with is there'll be an investment hurdle. So the company has either generated an amount of revenue or has received a certain amount of investment is a is a trigger to then assign the intellectual property into the business. Okay. And understanding that that assignment can and will happen is very important to investors. Right. You know, we don't like to be held hostage. To, to future you know suddenly the business become hugely successful and the university then going to camp out on a we're not going to resign unless whatever so yeah. certainty is key here and it's back to that alignment piece you know the value is going to be in the business what they do with the intellectual property so you know you're not going to license it off to somebody else yeah You've got a shareholding in the business where it's it's going so um that's what we're looking for from an ownership point of view I mean, just uh, diverting slightly away from the university piece. You, you, it, it happens at universities. Do people own it who think they own it? So yeah. has a research grant got ownership rights, particularly if it's come from a commercial yeah. source? Has it been invented by a PhD student? Yeah. Did, so therefore, does the university own it at all?
0: And these are really like, messy areas of IP law as well. So it's kind yeah. of always um, difficult. One One of the things that sort of... I think about because all, all of that was 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 great stuff. And founders, you know, especially university spin out uh, businesses will be listening to that and thinking, yeah, this is all great. But the, in that sort of in that uh, the moment of inception of that new business, the founders are of, often sort of they don't have very much leverage against the university in terms of what can be and should be done with the IP. Mm. They're usually fairly weak in that um, negotiation. Um Because without the technology, there is no business and, you know, the university owns the patent and universities can be, as I think you've sort of alluded to, they have different incentives um, to businesses and often to other shareholders in a business. So what what should, if we can spin it around and think about what should founders be, where, where should alarm bells be ringing for them that might cause them problems sometime down the track when they come to and they land at your door, in terms of that agreement, we've talked to can, you, can we sort of crystallise it into a few red flags where they should sort of say, I should probably get some advice on this? Yeah, so it's always case by case, isn't Yes, it? yeah. And I
1: appreciate your comment of the weakness of founders sometimes at that square yeah. point. Um, and we as investors have a lot more leverage. Mm-hmm. Um, Even we can't get over this hurdle sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, I mean, yeah. it, it really is. Every university has a different policy. Yeah. And it really essentially comes down to the experience of the member of staff that you're dealing with uh, at any particular university, you know, in the technology transfer office. Right. It really comes down to their experience and commerciality as to whether you can get deals done at all in some cases. Yeah. And even then, it can be very slow. And I think you'll see that in that some universities have far more spin outs than other universities because some can grasp these commercial points and some can't and as a an investor we are in the luxurious position that we always have more opportunities to invest in than we can you know than we have the resources to invest in so we get to pick and choose and if we can't get the commercials right we we do have the luxury of being able to walk away from the deal when it and it doesn't make sense i Um, think
0: no sorry go on
1: no, I was going to say. So, so most universities have some sort of template license agreement that's been drafted for them at some point in the dark history of time.
0: <laughs> and no, nobody dare deviate from. Yeah, yeah, I it sits in a SharePoint
1: folder, which yeah, literally <laughs> can't deviate from this because no. because nobody has the commercial experience or the authority usually. Yep. The yep, that's right. So far up in the university to be approved. Yeah. Um and. As licensing documents, they're usually competently drafted and sensible, but they're designed to license to a third party, Yeah. To a commercial entity. They're not designed for the situation of a spin-out. Yeah. And, and so once this template is produced and waved about, it becomes very difficult to then yeah. negotiate yeah. to a sensible position, yeah. you're fighting an uphill battle all the way. So I think Ooh. this early conversation about you're taking a big stake in this business. Do you believe in it or not? You know, yes. you're spinning it out. Do you believe it's going to become valuable business? Because you will get multiples more time return from that than you will from a licensing stream for this business. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're going to go down that route, you need to be aligned with the other shareholders that are going to come in. who are going to put, you know, ready money to work to, to realise that vision. Yeah. So that's the early conversation. And you can usually tell from that one, how well oh, go anywhere, <laughs> anyway. the investment may or may not proceed so so for academics it can be very difficult because they're not experts in this space no, no, they don't no. have the resources the financial resources to get advice mm-hmm. and so it goes back to being able to have that seniority of conversation internally at the university that really yeah. understands these points and what's what you're trying to do
0: yeah i guess on the advice point they wouldn't want to pay out for, you know, full advice in in this area, but there might be some way they can sort of snatch some guidance from different places to try and avoid sort of falling into common pitfalls. I certainly talked to quite a few founders um, of university spin-outs and they're in a position where they've just not had, the university is basically dictating to them what they've got to do and they've not had anybody. It's not like they've got lots of power to change that, but at least understanding what it is that they're getting into um, is a useful uh, bit of information. Whether, yeah,
1: I think, to think talking or to or peers, talking to peers yeah. can be very helpful yeah. beyond, you know, obviously professional advice if you've got access to it, but mm-hmm. talking to peers who've done spin outs and um, talking about the process can be very yeah. helpful. yeah um, And then investors that are coming in to look will be looking to build. A relationship with the founders in the first instance, mm-hmm. but that goes into a whole nother area of us, which is like what's the right management team to run a business? Yeah, yeah. um, even a spin out business is usually you bring in a commercial management team that's going to have more success, yeah, than a technical founding team that are brilliant at their technology, you know, have yeah. the vision, but yeah. don't have
0: experience
1: yeah. of growing a business.
0: Mm. And that's something actually, this I mean, I'm conscious that we're sort of getting towards uh time but there's two other bits that I wanted to pick your brains on whilst I've got you I'm going to get you back I'm sure I'm going to get you back at some (laughs) point but um and the two I'll give you both of them and then you can kind of uh talk about them in uh, at will but one is sort of um how important is FTO you've touched on it already how how big a deal is that in terms of offsetting risk for uh, an investor in your experience and the other is one um about ip and good management of ip as being a proxy for the credibility of that management team that you were just talking about there if they've got it got it buttoned up how much does that help with your confidence in their sort of credibility as a, as a good commercial management team
1: so so i'll take the second point first because okay. i think you remember the question and we'll go back to the other <laughs> one i'll remind you yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so yes it is an important part of their credibility So. Yeah. Um, they have to have so many strings to their bows because they're yeah. small teams. They have to be able to do lots of different parts of the job. Yeah. And, you know, first and foremost, we looked at that commercial piece and then have you got the technical piece? What we usually find is the technical pieces in the management team, they yeah. may or may not yeah. have the sales and marketing piece sitting alongside it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that we will always help founding teams to build up those right management teams. Yeah. But IP often... The strategy for IP, I feel, should sit in the commercial team.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so having good communication between the commercial team and the technical team to make sure you're capturing everything as you go along. I mean, we talked about this earlier, didn't we, where mm-hmm. you know the product has evolved and moved away from the yeah. original pattern, yeah. making sure that you've got that filing strategy, you know, and that 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 it fits with the commercial strategy. They're not two separate things intellectual property has to be an integral part of the commercial strategy because ultimately in one of these types of businesses that we're now talking about Mm -hmm. is it going to be valued at exit based on revenues or the intellectual property that it's got yeah now in an ideal world it would be a bit of both
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but a strategic buyer who wants the intellectual property will always pay more than the financial acquirer who just wants the revenue yeah yeah so so how your intellectual property fits into your commercial strategy is really important in terms of maximizing your exit now that strategy will depend from business to business sector to sector depending on who the acquirers are likely to be sure. how that sector normally behaves but is incredibly important that mm. there's a good discipline around that yeah and how that fits together and back to your first question which i did you know I was you did doing, remember it yeah <laughs> <and operating. laughs> Yeah. freedom to operate fits within that commercial strategy sure yeah so at the very earliest stages we recognize that a founding team like we're talking startup now maybe when they're looking to get angels yeah. but it's probably not institutional not going to have the resources probably to do a freedom to operate search or if they do it's going to be very limited in terms of what yeah. they say but we would expect them to understand who their competitors are because yeah. I've never yet accepted from a single founder that they have no competitors. It's
0: yeah. never true. <laughs> you it hear just it, but you not never it, yeah.
1: <laughs> And if they understand who their competitors are, they should have at least been on, you know, a Spasnet or something like that, where they can yeah. know oh, this is the sort of IP that's been filed. Sure. Now, if they are deliberately targeting a space that is very, you know, patent thick, it's left, right, and center, it's very... IP-driven space, then you probably want to get that FTA search done much earlier in the process. Yeah, yeah. But it's an important part of understanding your commercial strategy is understanding how you fit in that IP landscape because it actually plays through to the exit strategy in terms of who's going to acquire you. Well, Mm -hmm. maybe it's the person who doesn't have any IP in that particular space and really wants it. Yeah. So you need to understand how how you fit together. So it's not just about can you go about your business? Mm-hmm. it's about well maybe one of your competitors is going to be quite constrained if you then occupy that space yeah. you know the classic land grab strategy we're going to take a big ip land grab well that's great if there's acquirers out there who care you know if you put yes. your <laughs> tents in the desert nobody's going to want to buy a tent but, it, but if you if you manage to put up a couple of houses you know on some prime real estate they're going to want to get in there and yeah yeah yeah, so that yeah. that commercial thinking has to be applied across the intellectual property strategy.
0: So it's interesting. So it seems like it's less about offsetting risk and more about just understanding. Well, it's almost it's credibility again, isn't it? Have you have you understood where you fit within the market and how that aligns with your with your commercial strategy? So it it sounds as though it's less about investors thinking. Oh, you know. It's a less risky investment for me if I'm if I can feel certain that there's not they've got freedom to operate and we're not going to come up against anything.
1: Yeah, well it's both, isn't it? Yeah. So I mean, you don't want to invest in something and discover that they can't do anything because somebody else <laughs> holds all the patterns. I mean, that's, that's a terrible investment, right? So so it is, it is risk mitigation in the first instance. Yeah. But beyond that, you know, it it plays more of a role than that. It's about the commercial yeah. strategy and how it all fits together. Sure. and that's why i think you know that ip responsibility needs to sit with the with the ceo the commercial team mm-hmm. and it's back to that communication piece ip is not something that the technical team do they no. should be on you know make a new great product or an iteration that does something even better yeah but how you protect that and how that fits in the strategy is incredibly important
0: it's interesting though because it often does fall to the cto Mm. In, a, in a business where there aren't that many people to take these roles, it, it it falls to the CTO to do that. But it's interesting what you say. I agree with you. It's much more of a commercial role than it is a technical one. Well, listen, this has been absolutely great. Thanks so much for coming on, Sandy. I've absolutely loved it. And I've learned a stack. Actually, it's been really, really good. And like I say, it's uh, it's been so good that I'm definitely going to get you back on again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I think um, I don't know when that will be, but it'll, it'll be in a few months. I think it would be great. Um, so just before we finish, I just uh, if people want to listened to this uh, and want to get in touch or want to find out a bit more about you or Mercia, where should they go?
1: So, as I mentioned before, go straight on the website. If you want to yep. put your pitch deck in, there's a yep. space in Mercia's website for you to upload those and put a bit of information about yourself. Um, or you can come along to a meet the funder session. I think mm-hmm. I'm scheduled for one in a couple of weeks' time, I think I've got you? Some If you
0: tell everybody what data it is, then you'll be you'll be inundated. I'm
1: sure. <laughs> well, we, we think it works out with the size of the investment team. We we do it about once a year, I think. Actually, yeah. it works around about sixty of us, so it, yeah. we're on there about once a year. But I've got a feeling my slots this side of Christmas. So <laughs> if people keep their eyes open, they'll see usually around on LinkedIn somewhere.
0: Yeah. Perfect. Well, thanks once again for coming on. I really really appreciate it.
1: No problem at all. It's been a pleasure.
0: Okay, and to the listeners, uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.